This is an ABC podcast. It's a joy. It's an absolute joy. I loved this book. Chef's Kiss. It's an adventure. Bellissimo. She tells a very human story. It's so good. Those words, oh, I just, I could bathe in them. Good storytelling, characters you believe in and recognize very human characters. It absolutely clobbered me. Then you're left absolutely hanging. I had never read a book like that. And I put it off for quite a while until eventually I felt I have to read this bloody thing. Hi, welcome to RN's The Bookshelf. I'm Kate Evans and with Cassie McCullough, we like to talk fiction. And right here, we've collected together some of our favourite books and conversations from the last year or so. But we'd like to begin with a rereading rather than just always talking about new books. Gillian Mears' novel, Foles Bread, was published 11 years ago. And in this conversation, we're joined by Gillian's biographer, Bernadette Brennan, as well as by the writer Luke Stegerman, who happened to be speaking to us from his car right outside a showground and racetrack in regional Queensland. The late Gillian Mears wrote many short stories and essays and three novels, beginning with The Mint Lawn. Foles Bread is her third, published in 2011. And Bernadette, as her biographer, will call on you for context as we talk about the book. But why don't we begin with it as fiction and talk about the world it creates in northern New South Wales in a fictional place called One Tree Farm near the town of Weary in the 1920s and 30s. Yeah, as soon as we arrive in this novel, we're hearing the sounds of horses' hooves. In fact, the first sentence is, the sound of horses' hooves turns hollow on the farms west of Weary. And we are taken into the world of yeah, hard living in the bush. This is not glamorous Australia. This, this is really uh, the time when you had to know what you were doing to survive. And also there were lots of characters, hard characters out and about. And there were dangers for, in lots of ways, but particularly, I think, Kate, for women. Yes, and that's hinted at, isn't it, even at the end of the preamble when, you know, we've had these descriptions of, of the, the horses and the land and it right near the end, she says, take a lick of your horse's salty neck, lick that salt and see what story it tells. Under the mane, the salt is best. Watch out, you don't cry. Now, Luke, what did you make of that opening? I thought, Kate, you know, it's it's an old cliche. People, You hear people say that, that a book grabs them from the opening paragraph, and, and that's very, very rare for me. But I have to say that with Foles Bread, it really, really grabbed me from the very beginning. And Cassie just read that that first sentence, the sound of horses' hooves turns hollow on the farms west of Wirree. And straight away, there's this absolute both musicality and muscularity of language. There's these lovely repetitions, this assonance, this, as I say, the sheer muscular movement. It's not just the horses, it's the riders, but it's the language as well, which is moving along. And I found as a reader that I was you know, effectively galloping along with, with Gillian's writing. It's a kind of breathless kind of opening. It's abs- I found it absolutely masterful. And she took me into that world straight away. But Bernadette, it's almost an abstracted beginning, beating with those hoofbeats. And then 
the you know chapter one and we're told it's 1926 we're told a man named Cecil rides onto one tree farm with his daughter Noah who's 14 and a mob of pigs so what happens as we enter as we meet those characters and the the sort of action starts well, the action starts. Uh, can I just say, I think that preamble is the most extraordinary preamble I've ever read in any book ever. And precisely for the rhythm and the power and where it's going to take you and the passion and the sobbing that you will hear if you are careful. And Gillian said, I really want to move people to great feelings of power and to move people to tears, which I think she does very well in this book. So we have this thrumming, beautiful, galloping addressed to the reader in the preamble. And suddenly we arrive at One Tree Farm with Cecil Childs and the pigs that are being driven from the north down through uh, these farms down to the south to probably to the abattoirs down there. And we have Noah, his daughter, whom we're told inside has the, the baby of her dead uncle Nipper. So it just brings you up short. And when Geordie Williamson reviewed this book, he called it a breathtaking opening. And it really is because that night they arrive at One Tree Farm and all the men go into town to get drunk and they leave Noah, the 14-year-old girl who's been riding all day, or riding for weeks actually, uh, they leave her to be in charge of the pigs. And of course, in the middle of the night with no one around, she gives birth in a creek to little mister, as she calls him, and she's 14 and the pigs are looking on and there's the, the power and the pain of her body as she gives birth to this child. Doesn't it tell us so much about this character that we're in this this brutal experience, giving birth in a cold creek, having to keep an eye on those pigs which are dangerous, and then this baby that floats away and haunts the rest of the book? Absolutely. And it was a Interesting beginning because Gillian had decided she'd, she'd tried to write this book for nearly 10 years and when she came back to look at the manuscript in 2009, 2008, 2009, having had it put away for about six years and she wanted to write a book that was huge and mythic in that same kind of powerful way. So she wanted to write about jealousy but she wanted to write about shame and retribution and all these big sorts of ideas and by having Noah give birth to that child and then send the child off in a butter box rather than drown the child, thinking, well, I've given little mister a chance. Uh, it allowed the whole book and Noah's life to be haunted by this one act. And there's this heartbreaking couple of sentences uh, as she lets the butter box go. She says, you know, as it's floating down the creek, a kind of triumphant relief was sweeping through her that it was done. The baby was gone. She couldn't realise that for the rest of her life she'd be watching Flaggy Creek spinning that baby away from her, the fast waters making it disappear like a little bend and flag pony that's forgotten to take the final turn. But I wonder if we could just pause on that whole question of the language and the language of Australian history that's embedded in this novel. In 2011, Gillian Mears... Um, recorded an interview with Anita Barrow on Radio National's The Book Show. And one of the things that Anita asked her about was the the patois, the dialogue, the, the voice of these old men. And this is the way that Gillian responded. Uh, I mean, that's very much linked into my, my great love and adoration of old horsemen and old bushmen and just the tales they have 
fun for me over the years. And in particular, I'm remembering a Merv Mulligan, who I would spend hours with as a child. And you know that Judith Wright line about 70 summers are hived in him like old honey? Mm. There were like 1,770 stories hived in me like old honey. And something just really, I longed to celebrate that. So she really did celebrate those stories and that sense of the those stories and oral histories hived in her like old honey, I think is really quite powerful. But the thing that we're aiming to focus on in this discussion too is the role of horses and the way that they work through both of these books. So there's not just horses in the landscape in the 1920s and 30s. They're doing something in particular. They're jumping. So, Cassie? Yeah, yeah. So eventually Noah gets sort of involved in show jumping, going to these regional shows or get-togethers, I guess the sort of pre- cursor of Camp Draft, which is huge nowadays. Maybe it even was originally called Camp Draft. I don't and know. And show, regional shows are such a huge part of Australian history as well, bringing people from the country to the city and then travelling around the country via these shows. Just extraordinary. And so at one of these things is where she meets Roly Nancaro. Um, now, he is, quote, high jump champion, not only of New South Wales, but of the whole of Australia. So she's pretty impressed by that. And they actually do have this real affinity. And at one point, they end up going over a jump together and some photographer from a newspaper manages to capture the moment of this jump. And the photos then put on an Arnott's biscuit tin because it's so great. And they become sort of famous because they're on the, the lid of this biscuit tin in this wonderful jump. And of course, romance ensues, Bernadette. And what a romance it is. That's actually two weeks after she's given birth when she first meets Rolly. So here she is jumping and um, doing extraordinary leaps on these horses. So, yes, uh, she ends up, I mean, Mia's writes so well that we skip ahead quite a few years uh, without sort of almost even noticing. So it's not this belaboured idea of how they got to know each other, but it's Rolly's going to marry this girl. Uh, against the resistance of his mother and one of his sisters. And he does marry her and bring her to One Tree Farm. And their ambition, while they're working about 17 hours a day to keep the farm running, their ambition is to set up a team of their own and become the best high-jumping team in regional New South Wales and maybe even Australia. Uh, (laughs) And they seem to be on the path to doing that because they are both these brilliant, brilliant high jumpers. So this is also a story of a decline of a man and a marriage. So Rowley was hit by lightning three times and then his body starts to change. He can't feel his feet properly and the horses are aware of this because there's something different in their legs. Now, for people who don't know, Gillian Mears herself had multiple sclerosis, which was not diagnosed for many years, but had been diagnosed by the time she was writing this. And so there's a real awareness of what can happen with a body and the frustration. But I guess what's added to it, Bernadette, is an inability of this couple to speak about it. Yes, their inarticulateness is devastating because the real connection and passion and love between these two 
and then Rolly starts to lose sensation and he starts to become impotent and he doesn't know how to explain what's happening in his body to Noah. Noah tries increasingly desperate ways to try and seduce him and she doesn't know how to say, I love you, I love you. And so there's this great moment where she says, you know, uh, let's go back out under the jacarand, under the jacker this summer roll. She didn't say and these sorts of moments. And so you watch this couple who still desperately love each other fall apart because they don't know how to express what's happening physically in their relationship. It's really quite tragic. And Noah turns to alcohol and Rolly becomes increasingly paralysed and becomes an object of pity, something that um, Mears herself was absolutely terrified about becoming paralysed and becoming an object of pity. So she gives her fears and the reality of her body, which is really not responding to just about anything at the point she's finishing this book, she gives that to Rolly. The other character, though, who she makes sure does not become an object of pity, and that's partly because of the actions of Rolly, is um, Rolly and Noah's son. So they have a, a daughter, Lainey, who's a terrific character in her own right, but they have a son, George, with Down syndrome. And unusually for that time, they don't send him off to an institution. And Rowley is the one who says, no, we are bringing him home. We are bringing home this child, who we then see surrounded by cats and sticking onto his horse for all his might, despite all the terrible things that are sort of thrown at him by the local kids. So where does he fit in the story, Bernadette? So earlier on I said how Gillian and her friend Sandra Watkins used to run ride down to see Merv Mulligan. They were very tight. They were great mates um, through high school. And then just before Gillian turned 16, uh, she heard one day that Sandra was not at school because Sandra's mother had shot Sandra, her younger brother, and her self. Um, Sandra's mother, Joy, had also shot herself. Um, that kind of trauma, uh, Gillian later said, turned her into a writer. It was a crucial moment in her life. Um, and I think she suffered from PTSD probably for the whole of her life from that time. But that younger brother, Sandra's younger brother, had Down syndrome. So to come across this story, all these, and I, you know, when I first read this book and probably the first two times I read this book, I didn't know anything about Gillian's life. So when I was then researching her life to write about it, to discover that story and to see all these years later, she gives George Down syndrome and makes him be a figure of such love and joy and colour, I found extremely moving. That makes sense of another line in this book that I love. Noah, felt a sadness she thought rocks and trees might feel. Nobody ever staying for long. People always arriving, only to leave again the moment the picnic was eaten. Yeah, Gillian was obsessed with death from that. She was already obsessed with death before she was 16. And from that moment on, her diaries are just full of this terrible fear that her parents will die too soon. And her mother indeed did die too soon. Um, and so it's a it's a recurring idea in all of her writing that people die too soon, and that's certainly there here. We didn't mention um, 
this idea of the punishment because it comes back to little mister. Mm. So she she gives birth to Lainey and expects something to be desperately wrong with her because of the punishment that she has decided she deserves because of little mister. But of course, Lainey's perfect. And then that's when Rolly gets struck again by the lightning. So it's when their marriage breaks down, it's that Rolly can't say what's happening to himself and she can't say to Rolly, listen, I think you've actually got the punishment for me, for my transgression. So there is this unspeakable gulf between them. That idea of perfection but also of complex emotions coming at us in this book. Now that reminds me of something else that Julian Mears said in that in that interview in 2011. And Luke, given that you are sitting next to a race course as we're talking to you, I think I might get you to respond to this one. But let's hear first what she said. From the beginning, I knew I wanted to write a novel as round and beautiful as a showground. But very quickly, in my writing room, um, as I began that chapter one. A little peaceful dove crashed against the window and it was like some kind of forewarning that there was going to be an exploration of grief and a lot of other difficult human emotions as well. So we've got grief and the idea of something as round and beautiful as a showground. Well, doesn't that doesn't that tell you immediately? You know, the, what I was saying before about her love for those rural Australian traditions. It's interesting. We're talking about different layers uh, and different levels on which the book operates and contrasts. And I think there's uh, Gillian when there's that failing of human intelligence, uh, which occurs between Rolly and and Noah as their marriage breaks down and they can't express to each other what's going wrong. Nevertheless. The animal intelligence is always there. The animals are always getting into human relations and 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 knowing what's going on sometimes better than we are. And interestingly, there, Gillian just said about the little bird that flew into the window and 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 stressed that there was going to be trouble ahead. If we think about when there's that scene of the young girl giving birth at the start and 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 Gillian says how the animals knew what was going on. When they're making love under the jacaranda tree, the animals know what's going on. When Rolly's losing his power to ride, the horses feel they know what's going on. So there's this very, very strong animal intelligence. And in some respects, without this being taken the wrong way, I think Rolly's great triumph is in the love for his disabled son. And their son with Down syndrome, operates on a more he has he, he communicates with animals much better than he does with or and with his sister than he does with other humans so there's that that other kind of layer of intelligence of communication which is always going on throughout the book that's a brilliant point luke thank you for that i feel like i'm still recovering from this book what about you mm. cassie I, I think it's one of the more quotable books i've read um recently the image of little mister the baby forever destined to be careening away at the back of her mind in a box built for butter is one of the cruelest images in Australian literature. I think it is so much, you know, the heart of that rage that you were talking about, Bernadette, it, yeah, devastating. And Luke, I think this is the first time that you've read this novel. So what has it done to you? Well, it's. It, I read the book twice. I read the novel twice, and and as I, as I said before, it captured me immediately the first time through, and the second time, I found it a much 
richer and deeper experience. Uh, and so I think it's a novel which would repay perhaps in another year or two a third reading. It's really um, a bit, look, the fact that where I live in rural southeast Queensland is not a long way from where Gillian was brought up in Grafton. And and a lot of the country scenes resonated very much with me because I, I see people like that and living those kind of lives, a little more updated, but I see a lot of that around me. And so it really, really spoke to me. I, I loved the fact that it celebrated these forgotten people and their language particularly. Um, look, it, it really, for me, I just you know, I, I don't read a lot of uh, Australian fiction simply because my research interests, I, I simply don't have time. But I'm so thrilled that I was given the opportunity to read this book and then read it again. And I will read it a third time. It's absolutely fabulous. And of course, I'll get round when time permits to reading uh, other work of Gillian as well. Bernadette, I'm sure you've read this book many times, but given that you've read it in relationship to her archive, to her letters, to her drafts. Does that undercut your reading of the book or add to it? It only adds. I've read it, yes, many, many, many times and it only gets better. And then knowing what I know about her life, Mm. the book just gets stronger and stronger. And I think it's astounding that you pulled this off. And it's probably worth readers knowing that by the time she was doing her final edits on this, she could only move one finger on her left oh, hand and she was lying on her side with pressure sores and she hadn't walked for five months and she edited this manuscript with her one left finger. That's amazing. Wow. That's power. <laughs> and that's Gillian Mears' Foles Bread, published by Alan and Unwin, released in 2011. Cassie and I were joined there by biographer and literary academic Bernadette Brennan and writer and Spanish history expert Luke Stegeman. I'm Kate Evans and this is RN's The Bookshelf. And as you might have noticed, we like to find reviewers whose expertise fits the book they're reading for us. And so the reader we turn to next is Lisa Bennett, literary studies academic with a PhD in medieval Icelandic literature from Flinders University, South Australia. Kari Gieslason is a writer and an academic who's written in a number of modes. As memoir, he's written about return journeys he's made to Iceland. In fiction, with his 2015 novel, The Ash Burner. And he also collaborated with ABC Radio's Richard Feidler on Sagaland, the island of stories at the end of the world. And Sagaland was also a four-part series here on Radio National, as well as that book. So it's both a journey and a retelling of those famous stories, the sagas. Mm. And these sagas make up so much more than just stories. They are deep in the DNA of the Icelandic people. Lisa, how do they work and, and what kind of stories are they? So the stories that um, Kauri has retold are called the Sagas of Icelanders. We'll just go with the English translation names. And the Sagas of Icelanders, it's a group of 40 sagas, which is incredible. So 40 sagas written in the early medieval period that retell the history of the Norwegians primarily that migrated to Iceland in 
the late ninth century. So they read like historical fiction. It's 40 stories set all over Iceland with connections to Norway, with connections to as far east as Constantinople, and as far west as Vinland, which is now North America. Um, and it's stories about the incredible, intrepid, adventurous, sometimes um, sometimes good, sometimes not so good characters that populated Iceland. Um, so they were written up two to 300 years after those historical figures lived. Um, and so we meet a lot of uh, regular characters. There aren't so many supernatural Old Norse characters. We don't see the gods appearing in these ones because they're meant to be factual historical documents. Having said that, there's a lot of magical stuff in there. We'll see ghosts um, who are kind of like zombies, you know, revenants that come back from the grave. We see Farsi adventures, um, great warriors and so on. So even though they're meant to be historical, there's a lot of embellishment there. And so, Lisa, what Cowrie has done in this novel, The Sorrow Stone, that we've both read, is to write his way back into one of those sagas, fleshing it out as a novel and telling it from the perspective of one of the sidelined characters. Now, here he is explaining what he wanted to do. It's based on a story, uh, one of the Icelandic sagas, the saga of Gisli the Outlaw. And that's really the saga of a sort of warrior poet who was called Gisli, but he had uh, two siblings. He had uh, Disa and also a brother called Kel. And these siblings appear in the original story, but they don't have what you would call a kind of sustained role. They, they impact the action, but we never really fully see their side of things. So my task, the task I set myself in the Sorrow Stone was to tell the story of Gisli's sister more fully. And so this is the story that appears in glimpses in the original, but which is expanded in my novel. And he expands this story, Lisa, by giving us this woman, Disa, where we get both her childhood story, but we also meet her as an adult. And as the novel opens, she's a grown woman with her son, Sindri. They're injured. They're running away, hiding in the snow, just how brutal is this world that we're reading our way into? I think Kari does such a great job in the opening passages of this novel of describing the brutality, not just of the people in the world, but also the hardships of the landscape. So we meet Disa as she's escaping a situation that um, she's gotten herself involved in. Um, she's gotten involved in some trouble with her husband and um, companions, and she's had to flee. So that's already setting her up in a really dangerous situation. We've just talked about how brutal the Viking warriors can be in this world. Um, and she has gotten on the wrong side of them. And so she's had to flee her home in wintry conditions. And we soon see her and her son having to sleep overnight in an open field, you know, with the snow, having to dig into the snow and survive with nothing but a shield to protect them. I mean, it gives you such a visceral sense of how difficult it would be to survive on a, a sort of social level, but also just against the elements in this world at this period. It, it blew me away how cold I felt while I was reading the opening as she was making her escape. It was incredibly cold, but then we flip back to her childhood to get a sense of where she came from and the sort of 
kinship and family relationships. How important are her brothers in this story? So this is a world, as I was saying before, that's honour-based. Um, and part of honour is having good, strong kin ties. So family ties are fundamental to how this society functions. Maintaining good relationships with your elders, with your brothers, uh, Brothers take responsibility for their sisters' children often. You know, there are all these complicated relationship um, burdens, I'll say, and not trying to be overly dramatic, but it is something that really can affect the, uh, the way that your life plays out. If you break these bonds, if you break your oaths or go against people that you've married or go against people in your own blood family, it can have dire repercussions. Um, and so men can lose honor. Women don't have honor the same way that men do in the Viking age. Um, they obviously are humans that want to be treated honorably and treated well, but um, honor is almost like a currency in this world. And there's a, a limited pot. I often tell my students that it's honor pie. So picture a pie chart and there's only so much honor to go around in the world. So if any man wants to get more, he has to take it from somebody else. Um, so this will really govern the way people interact with each other, who will interact with whom. And so here we have women also in this world who don't get to eat uh, any of the honor pie but the way that they can increase their honor or behave honorably is uh, we see Disa doing that she doesn't let herself get walked all over when things happen to her brother complicated relationships um, her husband goes against her brother Gils who is Geesley in the original saga she's torn she owes fealty to the person that she's married to now, but she still has the blood relation tie to her brother. So when these two parties conflict, she says, well, what am I going to do? You know, blood is thicker than water sort of thing. She has to stand up for her family, even if it means going against her husband. Um, and so she behaves honorably, but at the same time does something dastardly. So it, it gets complicated. Well, I'm going to start looking for some honor pie. Um, <laughs> far, far too used to humble pie, which I seem to eat a lot of. <laughs> What's the honour pie? Well, and who gets the bigger slice in this story? Because I gather in the original story, the original saga, Deesa mm -hmm. was seen as a, a villain because she was seen to have betrayed her brothers by siding with her husband. But by mm -hmm. retelling the story... From her perspective, we both get a sense of her strength and also the ways in which she's sort of used as a commodity and married off and being told what to do. And so she has a, an affair with a boy next door and her brothers kill him. Mm -hmm. Really? <laughs> yeah, and then yeah, they, try to, they try to marry her off to somebody else and then she does eventually marry somebody and move away from Norway to Iceland. So how, I mean, what are we talking about, Lisa, in terms of the size of these communities and the number of people who are looking at each other's honour? Not a huge place. Um, I mean, Iceland nowadays is still not very big. 300,000 or so people populate it today. Um, at the time that this story was set, it's at the migration or the settlement period. And as far as scholars know, the, the country or any sort of inhabitable land in Iceland, it was all settled within about 60 years. So we have 
not a huge population. And so the population is all comprised of people, their families who are bringing the same baggage that they had in Norway over to Iceland with them. And in Iceland at the time, we don't have um, any sense of king or government. Uh, they're self-governed. So the people that you offend in your family are also the people who are bringing these issues to to what they call things or tings, like local parliaments or local governments. Eventually, they make the Althing that anybody who goes to Iceland would get to go to Thingvellir, which is this beautiful, outdoor, amazing site where they would gather in the summer for assemblies to hear, you know, people's problems with each other. They would have quote-unquote trials amongst peers and amongst family members to um, decide who's outlawed for whatever crimes, um, to decide who's got to be killed for their crimes, and so on. So there's no police force. There's no um, objective outside body of people who can you know, seek vengeance. So it's wonderful what Kari does in this book. Like you were saying before, Disa is kind of an ambiguous character in, in Gisla Saga. She is a sideline character, but she's there and she has a voice and has actions. And so what we see her doing at the very end of the saga is where Kauri's story begins, her acting out against her husband. And so she, we're left in the original with the sense that she is not necessarily good, that she hasn't necessarily behaved the way that she should in the in, in her circumstances. But starting off with that point of ambiguity and allowing us as readers nowadays to find out a little bit more about what's motivated her and how this world works, I think is, is brilliant and made it so much clearer, even for someone like me who's read Gisela Saka a number of times. I went back and reread it after reading Kari's book and I was like, ah, now I see all of these conflicts between these men, which really are the things that dominate the saga. I see them through a completely different viewpoint now. And um, Gisli being the the hero, which is what he's, you know, the story is called Gisla Saga. It's all about him. Now it has a different tint to it when I look at it. Um, it's given me a lot of food for thought. And as somebody who didn't know Gisli's saga, it will probably take me to it. So there's a whole lot of complicated cultural things that are going on, but he also grounds it, I thought, in terms of both objects and language. So I really started to notice the way that particular things, a sword, a chest, matters of material culture came in. But then there's the imagery in the language and the way that he uses it. And the title of the book itself, of course, it's called The Sorrow Stone. Now, let's hear Kauri Gislason himself explaining what that is. A sorrow stone is, well, first of all, it's a kenning. Um, the kennings were these uh, ornate metaphors that existed in Old Norse poetry. Uh, they are just f uh, figures of speech that describe phenomena. So uh, the, the chain of man is a kenning for the sea. Another kenning for the sea is uh, the whale road. It describes um, the physical properties around us in ways that were familiar uh, and relatable to the old Norse people. And I came across a, a, a kenning for the heart. Um, which was that it was a, a stone of sorrow on the shore of thought, 
And I thought, wow, you know, that's uh, that's a glimpse, isn't it? That's, I talked about glimpses into the unspoken emotion of the sagas. And there it is, the, the sorrowful stone, or the sorrow stone, as I ended up calling it, is the heart. And it's drawn from a kenning uh, from the old Norse poems. Mm, that's deep, isn't it? I like it. How important is it, Lisa, that we think about the the language of the sagas and the language even of the, the poems that we don't hear from Gisli, the sound of the kennings, this sort of metaphorical language that is twined around these stories? Um, I think that the beauty of being introduced to it through a novel um, is that we can understand some of these things. And I don't mean that in a patronizing way, but this, the way that the poems appear in the sagas, there are scholars that dedicate their entire lives to determining what these kennings mean. <laughs> it's really difficult. It's an area of scholarship that I don't even go near with a 10-foot pole because these kennings can be so convoluted and complicated that you just go, what is this poem even about? It takes 25 lines to just say, a woman picked up a sword, essentially. But the language itself, knowing these sorts of things, what Kari was just describing there, I couldn't help think about how in this period, there was a sense that the heart, that the mind didn't reside in the head the way that it does, the way that we think, you know, the brain is in our head. So that's where we think thought resides, but instead everything resides in the chest. And so having the sorrow stone being on the edge of thought, it's not that big a difference. It's, there's not that much distance. The emotions and thoughts are really close, hand in hand. Um, and so I think that that's actually wonderful imagery for what's going on in the story. And I think that this comes across clearly in the story of the sorrow stone without even needing to know that the Kennings influenced the construction of that tale. Blood, Vengeance, Family, Women's Lives and Surviving. That's Kauri Gieslison's The Sorrow Stone, published by University of Queensland Press. Karen Joy Fowler is an American writer whose many novels include The Jane Austen Book Club, the wonderfully titled We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, and her latest, simply called Booth. And it's one of those novels that raises an awful lot of questions, both about writing and reading. But I was also keen to ask her about the other books with which it might be in conversation. Karen Jo Fowler, thank you so much for joining us on The Bookshelf. Kate, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, one of the things I'm really interested in is how differently your novel might be read in America and the rest of the world. So I'd like to start by asking you, the historical figure, John Wilkes Booth, is he going to be instantly recognised by an American audience? I believe he will be instantly recognised by an American audience. I do not think I can have the same expectation in other countries. And what is it that an American audience, I mean, here's the man who assassinated Abraham Lincoln in 1865, but how is he likely to be understood as a character before people read your book? I, uh, you know, there's a, a, a real range of um, background that people will bring to this book. I expect a lot of the people who will be interested in the book 
will be people who already know a lot about the Booth family and uh, and have already read a lot, and they will be reading and looking quite differently. Um, they will be looking to see what I've got wrong, I expect. But I think for the general audience, um, what is known is that uh, John Wilkes Booth um, assassinated Abraham Lincoln in Ford's theater right at the end of the Civil War. And that that might be the most that I could hope for uh, the, for a general audience to know. This novel, it's called Booth, but it's not exactly a fictional biography of the assassin. So what is it? Where did you want to place that man in your story? I, uh, I, it was a, an issue that I struggled with continually as I was um, putting the book together because I really did not want to write a book about John Wilkes Booth. I don't like him. His actions had a devastating impact on my country, which we still feel to this day. And he's gotten, at least within the U.S., a great deal of attention. There are a lot of books about him. And some of them, uh, I think, because he seems like a very unlikely person uh, to become an assassin. He was handsome. He was popular. He was successful. He had none of the... um, none of the sort of lone wolf kind of hallmarks that you might expect uh, an assassin would have. So he's he's kind of remained a mystery. And for that reason, I think he's remained interesting to people. But I thought that he was a man who had just gotten a great deal of attention and um, did not deserve, and certainly did not deserve my attention. And so... What I was more interested in was his his large family and what the impact of the assassination had on their lives and how they how they dealt with having a brother who uh, was seen then and remains one of the great villains of American history. Yes, because this your novel reads more like a, a collective biography, a, a fictional collective biography of a family. So what makes this family so interesting for you? Everybody in it um, is just fascinating to me. And again, I think one of the uh, one of the things I wanted to argue is that people who don't murder presidents can be just as interesting as people who do. They were theatrical dynasty, uh, very successful. The, the patriarch Junius Booth was considered to be the foremost Shakespearean actor in America, a name that was very recognizable. Um, He toured all over the country, so many people had seen him act. And he had friends among the most uh, powerful and, and recognizable people in the country. He was also, in addition to being famous for his acting, which was generally agreed to be magnificent. He was quite famous for his instability. He he drank a great deal. There are any number of very peculiar stories about him and about his behaviors, um, including him running off the stage during mid-performance at one point and uh, stripping off his clothes, climbing a tree and crowing like a rooster. So he was, you know, a a subject of fascination, both 
for his genius and, and for the fodder he provided to gossips. And I think that the children, and there were 10 of them um, all told, although four of them died in childhood. So six of them survived to their adulthood. I think that they carried very much this sort of dual legacy of, of their father's genius, which they were all very committed to, their father's legend, and this stain on their father of, of his freakish behaviors. Uh, and it made them peculiarly protective of the family name in a way that I don't think most families um, carry. Well, there's so much in that answer. You know, fame, family, legacies, grief, those lost children have such an impact on your book. But just back to that question of how this novel of yours might be read differently in America and elsewhere. I'm really curious about something you do early on in the book. So we meet this family. We meet them through the parents, Junius and Mary. As you say, he's a travelling actor who often leaves his young family behind. And so we, we meet the children. We get this sense of not at all an easy life, getting by in rural America on their own. And then on page 35, everything changes. You're describing June and Rosalie, two of the kids, left to fend for themselves. And I'm just going to turn a few pages and make sure that I've got, got it right in front of me. June and Rosalie, though, are not left fending for themselves and caring for Asia, who is another sister, alone in the wilderness, with only their drunken grandfather to help them. Far from it. By 1838, the farm is home to some 40 people, most of them slaves who live in a scatter of cabins at the forest's edge. I was startled by that because I hadn't seen these people in the landscape. But slaves and slavery... Is that going to startle your American readers or will they already know that this is a landscape shaped by slavery? I would hope that they would understand that this is a landscape shaped by slavery. What I would not expect them to understand was this particular family's relationship to slavery, which was a, a complicated one. I, I think because John Wilkes Booth was a famously racist, white supremacist, very much a proponent of an advocate for slavery, I think it will surprise people to learn that the rest of the family was not. That in fact, his grandfather participated in activities that would have been illegal at that time, helping slaves escape from Maryland into Philadelphia. And that um, his family, although surrounded by enslaved people on their property, were not slave owners themselves, that they hired other people's slaves to help work on the farm. And so they would have, been, they would have paid a wage to the owners of the slaves, but they also paid a wage to the slaves themselves. And um, some small handful of them were able to buy their own freedom through the wages. That, that they earned on the Booth Farm. Uh, it's, it's a startling fact to me, um, startling to try to imagine it, that um, of Marianne, the mothers, her, her two best friends were uh, 
a, a black woman who worked in the house with her, um, again, for a wage, and a white woman who owned the children of the black woman. So uh, just a very, very uncomfortable and, and difficult to imagine dynamic where one of your best friends owns your other best friend's children. How much is this novel of yours shaped by the historical record and how much were you able to imagine your way in between that historical record? This is not an easy question. The historical record is, is vast, and, um, but also very suspect. You know, it turns out that when your brother murders the president, um, a lot of people who n- knew you have memories that suddenly shift. And there's just a lot of mythology about the family, a lot of stories, particularly about the father that, um, that may or may not be true. So it was, there's a great deal of material, but deciding what material seemed solid enough that I, that I believed it um, could be very tricky. And, and in spite of the fact that I was very clear in my head that what I was writing was a novel, I did not want to, um, to do anything that I knew was not true. So, so there was the material that I decided was true. And then there are the gaps where I had to make things up and fill things in. And, and obviously what I've made up is very unlikely to be true, but it's not not true. It's, it's not things that I know I have um, deliberately misguided the reader into believing. Karen Joy Fowler, I'm interested in the books that might sit on your bookshelf somewhere adjacent to this novel of yours. So are there other works of historical fiction that have had to play a similar uh, game as the one that you've had to play with writing into the spaces between the historical record, others that you admire or feel inspired by or that you were thinking about in some way as you wrote Booth? Yes, I think in general, I think this is the project of of the historical novelist is to imagine yourself into the spaces that um, that remain unless you are taking great liberties and fictionalizing much more than I was trying to do. And so um, I, I love historical novels and there are a great many that I've read and that I've admired and uh, like the whole rest of the world, I think I was quite, uh, I was quite taken with Hilary Mantel's three books, starting with Wolf Hall. And I, I feel that, you know, that I was so uh, impressed even on a subconscious level that when I began writing Booth, it just came out in present tense. It wasn't a decision I really made. It just felt natural. And I, I blame Hilary Mantel for this. I think I recently read uh, Lauren Groff's novel Matrix, um, which is also, you know, takes place in medieval times, but is all in present tense. And I feel Hilary Mantel has just persuaded all of us that this is the appropriate tense for a historical novel. And then there were... Um, there are uh, just around the period of the American Civil War. There are a great many novels that um, 
that I love and that some of them quite recent and some of them quite old, but all of them trying to do similar things in, in some ways to what I was trying to do. And I can, I can give you a, quite a list, um, starting with Little Women by uh, Louisa May Alcott and then Toni Morrison's Beloved and Cane River by Lolita Tadami, Cold Mountain by Charles Frazier, March by Geraldine Brooks, The Good Lord Bird by James McBride, Enemy Women by Paulette Giles, Grace by Natasha Dion, Cloud Splitter by Russell Banks, The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead, The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr., Ride with the Devil by Daniel Woodrell, Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders. This, in some ways, this harks back to your earlier question about um, reading the book from inside the U.S. and from outside the U.S. is that you know, the Civil War is a topic of um, enduring fascination inside, uh, inside my country. And there are and continue to be these sort of dueling narratives about it. But, um, but it's, it's still a very live topic here. Uh, and um, there's a, still a lot of, of a sense of grievance, a part of the, um, of the people who live in the Confederate States about how the war was, uh, was carried out. Karen Jo Fowler, congratulations again on Booth and thank you so much for speaking to us on the bookshelf. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Karen Joy Fowler's Booth is published by Serpent's Tale. I'm Kate Evans and I'll be back next time with Cassie McCullough to talk entirely new fiction released this year, 2023. So join us then, won't you? The project of the novel has always been to imagine what it's like to be someone you are not. I, I was in love with, with stories and I was always surrounded by books. I grew up in Nigeria where books were gold dust. They showed us how brave writing can be. And I was thinking when reading that, when I write, I want to achieve this level of excellence. Books and, and literature and fiction was like the realm of liberty, of freedom. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.